Good morning. Let's wake up. Good morning. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Even, even if that was just for me, thank you. Okay. My name is Annie, and I'd like to introduce myself to you guys. My name is Annie Crawford. <laughs> thank you. Uh, up until last month, it was Annie Kornberg, but I married this man, and now I'm a Crawford. I know. Best part of my life. Oh, second best to following Jesus was marrying Joe. It's great. Um, okay, and I work for a ministry called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Woohoo! So does Adri. And um, basically, that means I get to pretend to be in college. <laughs> it's great. Um, and uh, not really. I get to work with college students and help them experience Jesus and help them help their friends experience Jesus while they're in college. I love my job. I get to see really cool stuff happen on campus. I work down in Lewiston at LCSC. And some of the joys of my life are getting to see students um, who maybe thought that Jesus was hard to get to and hard to follow, um, find out that Jesus loves them and really cares about them and wants them to join the family. So that is my job, and I love it. Um, so I get to continue this morning our sermon series called Tangled. And uh, it's a sermon series about 1 Corinthians, and the reason why it's called Tangled is because tangling is what's happening in the church in Corinth. Um, so Paul actually planted the church of Corinth, much like me, I'm a planter. <laughs> I didn't plant a church in Corinth. Paul did, however. And he, uh, then he left it, and as he left it, things started to get really messy, Okay, like the ways of the world and the ways of the church started to get intertwined. And I think there was ways that people were starting to get confused, both inside and outside the church, about what the church was supposed to be and look like. And it's at this time that Paul writes them a letter to kind of help them out. He says, I can see that it's creating divisions, that you guys are so tangled. And instead of being one body um, designated to mission together, you're becoming factions, and there's things that are splitting you up. And so he writes to help. And actually, I heard a good, um, good kind of way of looking at what the First Corinthians passage is like. It's sort of like hearing one end of a phone call. So the church in Corinth has written in or asked Paul some questions, and Paul answers their questions and gives them some advice, but all we can hear is one side of the phone call. So that's a little background on 1 Corinthians, and so today we're going to hear what Paul has to say on the phone call about how they do communion and how they gather. Um, and I think that 1 Corinthians is a helpful book to us because even though it wasn't written like directly to us, Pullman Foursquare, um, I think we can actually gather what it means and what it looks like to be a real church and to have real community. Um, and I'm actually, one thing I felt really thankful for this week is that God is so gracious to us that although these problems of division and ways of the world getting into the church have existed for thousands of years, we still have tools to help, be, help us to become the kind of church that God wants us to become. So I was feeling really thankful for that this week, that God hasn't just, like, given up. Uh, good for me. Good for you, too. So um, what I want to do first is I want to read the passage we're going to read today. And I'd like to read it all together. I'm going to read it out of this book. And if you have your own um, Bible, that's great. This is the ESV version. 
It should be around the same. But you can open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11, and I'm going to read for us. We're going to start at 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, and another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty, of concerning, guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. Pretty intense. Are you glad you came to church this morning? Okay. I'm going to pray first because this is intense and we better invite God. Just kidding. He's already here. Okay, Jesus, we long for more of you this morning. We want to understand. We want our hearts to be opened. We want our minds to be opened. Would you, God, would you come into our space, into our imagination, into our um, focus? And would you direct us towards you? God, would whatever I say that is of you stick in people's minds, and whatever I say that is not of you fall away? Lord, we ask this because you are merciful, and we know you are here. Amen. Okay. So, like I said, we're talking about communion. Often not an entire sermon, but I think it's actually really crucial to understanding how to become an untangled church. So I know that lots of us probably come in here with different ideas, different, um, different traditions around communion. In this church, what we often do is about once a month, we gather together, we have the juice, wine, it's juice, and the bread, and we break it together, and we usually take the bread, and we dip it in the juice, and we remember what God has done for us. But I actually didn't grow up like that. I grew up Catholic, so I had a really, really different tradition around, um, around communion, um, for me, actually, we went through a whole class before we were uh, able to take communion as uh, with the rest of the church. Yeah, I'm saying you're like, I get it. Um, yeah, so uh, in my childhood, I went through a class, and then I remember I wore a white dress, and I took communion with all these other kids, and then we had a party. I'm not, I remember being like, why are we having a party? I've eaten and drink many things in my life. Like, why are we celebrating this one? My parents had never been so proud of me eating anything, right? Um, 
but they were so proud of me that they wanted to throw a party. And it was a great party. It was like at a restaurant and like my grandparents came and we had this big thing. And I just remember my parents being so proud and saying to me like, we, we are just so proud of you today. We can't, we, I don't know if they said we can't believe this happened because they signed me up for the class. But um, they, they felt a serious kind of reverence for that day and for what had happened. And I think what I didn't understand as a kid, because I think I was around 10, was that this eating and this drinking was completely different than what we did any other time. It was holy. It connected me to God. And so that's why my parents were proud. They were proud that I had participated in something that drew me in to God. And even though I know Catholics and Protestants have different beliefs about the exact mechanics of the body and blood of Jesus, the meaning still rang true and still rings true that this act had a lot of meaning. It meant something. It was deeper than surface level. But as we hear in the text, the Corinthian church had lost sight of the significance of breaking bread together. In fact, they had missed the mark so much that this is how Paul starts with them. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Yikes! I feel like I'm reading that in the Corinthian church, and I'm like, oh no. Oh gosh. He's like, yeah, this isn't working. Okay, so let's keep reading. He says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat or drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. (laughs) It's heated. Paul's mad. Yeah, Paul's mad. And I'm going to give you context around what's happening so you can can understand why why Paul is mad. So in the early Christian church, it's common that people would gather together for what's called an agape feast, uh, also known as a love feast. And what would happen here is people would come together, bringing food and eat together, and during that meal was also when they took communion, Um, breaking of bread, what we would consider uh, this kind of communion. They also called the Lord's Supper, also known as the Last Supper, many names, one action. Um, so what they were imitating, though, was the, the Last Supper, which is the, the meal that Jesus ate with his closest followers just before he died. And the love feast was supposed to be a reminder of what God had done for them. The love feast was supposed to bind them together. But from the picture that Paul just painted, that is not what is happening. Okay, think about it like this. You expect to go to a church potluck where you're going to take communion. You're going to eat together. But you get there, and people are drunk. Some people are hoarding their food away, pretending they don't have as much as they do. Other people are eating only what they brought from home and flaunting it. And then other people are in the corner hungry. Like one person is three sheets to the wind with a chicken leg in hand, 
and the other person is like starving in the corner. I bet you'd leave. I would leave. I would not go ever go back to that church. <laughs> I would be like, oh gosh, that was so weird. Um, and the reason is because it doesn't sound like a love feast. It actually sounds like the worst kind of party. Um, those people are not there to love one another or to connect with God. They are there to flaunt their wealth and to show the group what they have and remind others what they are lacking. And Paul calls them on it. He says, um, do you want me to praise you for these actions? No, not happening. And just an aside, I think this is such a throwdown in love because Paul is like, oh, you want me to tell you a good job for keeping up the traditions of the Lord's Supper? No, because it's bringing more harm than good. It is not a good thing. Uh, I won't give you an applause because you have twisted what is a really important tradition to something that is hurting people. And I think what Paul's intensity tells me is that communion is something that deserves, that serves a deep and unifying purpose. And when it's not used for that purpose, it actually affects both the church at large and the individuals. Could you imagine not knowing Jesus and walking into something like that? You would have a really weird picture of who Jesus is. If these people are trying to imitate Jesus and they are hoarding their food away and not sharing and letting people go hungry, Jesus must be stingy. But most of all, I think that this is missing the point of the love feast, right? It's not love at all. And as someone who is broken, saved, and redeemed by the love of Jesus, this seems to me like a huge miss. And it definitely inspires me to think twice about how I could share love at our next potluck. Maybe on Wednesday. (laughs) Because I don't want to be anything like this church. I want to have a love feast. So Paul is calling them back to that love. He's saying, get off your high horse and start loving each other right. Remember the Lord's Supper and what that was really about. And he goes on to tell them, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is what they were supposed to be imitating. The Lord's Supper was supposed to connect them, and they were to do it in remembrance of Jesus. But that was not what was happening. And so because it was such a big deal to Paul, and seems like it was a really big big idea, big deal to Jesus, I think that this morning it is worth it to look at what the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, was actually supposed to be like. Anyone with me? Yeah, I think so too. Okay, so it's a bit of a dive. You guys ready? Dive as in like deep dive in a scripture, not like a dive bar. Um, okay, so it starts in Exodus. And if you're new to this church, Pastor Jamie talks about Genesis all the time, okay? And he loves Exodus. 
Uh, I mean, Exodus, sorry, Genesis. He loves Genesis. I love Exodus the way that Pastor Jamie loves Genesis. So um, I'm not going to, like, make you guys stay here till 4 p.m. while I nerd out about Exodus. So I'm going to tell you the bare bones of this story this morning, okay? And I'm going to encourage you to go home and spend some time reading Exodus. This is an amazing story, and it helps build up the New Testament. So I'm going to tell you the bare bones this morning. Okay, so... The Israelites are enslaved by the Egyptians for 400 years. Long time. And a man you might have heard of named Moses was sent by God to lead them out of slavery because the Israelites are God's people, so he wants them free. So let me just tell you, this rescue mission that Moses was sent to do is nothing short of the original Mission Impossible because the Egyptian ruler Pharaoh doesn't want the Israelites to leave. They're his free slave labor. So it's not an easy task for Moses, but thankfully, God is helping. And eventually, God starts to send plagues to show the power of God and also to try to persuade Pharaoh to let his peop- God's people go. So he sends plague after plague, and every plague, Pharaoh says, no. I won't let your people go. And he chooses the slavery of the Israelites even over Pharaoh's own individual freedom from these plagues. He chooses to keep the Israelites a slave. But the last plague that God decrees was that every firstborn son will die if the house does not cover their doorway in the blood of a lamb. And to us, this sounds wild, except maybe to the bus booms who are used to lambs. Um, Because, like, animal blood is gross and weird, (laughs) and we don't do this today. But to them, actually, this is really normal because animal sacrifice was a sign of forgiveness and absolution. So in, in those days, to forgive sins, they would sacrifice an animal to God. So in this instance, they were covering their whole house in the lamb's blood as a symbol of salvation and safety. Okay, so more normal for them than it was for us. And... As that plague was happening, God said that they were to put into, new pl- put into place a new celebration, the Lord's Passover. So this is from Exodus 12. God says, On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. Okay, so what God is saying is that the blood is a sign that you will not suffer under the plague, but instead I will lead you out of slavery and into a new life. And I want you to celebrate that for generations to come. And so that day, actually, the Israelites had their exodus from Egypt. They were delivered from slavery. And for years to come, Jewish people would celebrate the Lord's Passover and remember what God had done. And I actually had the, uh, the opportunity to celebrate a meal like this. It's called a Seder dinner during the Passover festival. And what I loved about it was the, um, the intricacy of, like, the joy and sorrow that they want to remember each time. There is such sorrow in, this, in a Seder dinner. They remember the tears that their people shed, the bondage that they were in. And at the same time, they sing praises to God and remember how God saved them. 
So this tradition actually is still happening, happens every year. And they are still remembering how their ancestors were saved from slavery and led into new life and freedom. Okay, so why am I telling you this story? Here's why. The Lord's Supper, Jesus' last supper, happened on Passover. And that, in my opinion, was not a mistake. Okay, so there's dispute over whether Jesus had a Seder dinner or not, but what we do know is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, which is that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Hmm. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And with this, he created a new covenant for them. Because, and because we have access to the story of Jesus' death and resurrection, we also know that that new covenant offered us freedom. On the cross, Jesus made it possible for us to find new life. He made it possible for us to have an exodus, to be led out of death and into life. Mm-hmm. It's good stuff. And in Romans it says, consequently, just as one trespass, they're talking about Adam, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, also one righteous act, talking about Jesus, resulted in justification and life for all people. So good. For just as through the disobedience of one man, Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, Jesus, the many will be made sinners righteous. So good. That is the new covenant. Because of the cross, we no longer have to sacrifice animals to be forgiven. Because Jesus died for us, Jesus absolved us. Jesus was that animal sacrifice that ended the need for any other. He is like that lamb covering our door. But instead, he covers us in the Exodus story, you remember that the blood of the lamb on your door meant you were safe, saved, and passed over from death. And the blood of Jesus means that for us. Jesus' blood shed on the cross means that when we choose into unity with Christ, when we choose to believe, we are metaphorically covered in Jesus' blood. We are saved, passed over, and safe. So at the Last Supper, Jesus was telling his followers about what was going to happen on the cross. He would die and his body would be broken. He would shed blood and then he would rise again. And a new covenant would be available to them. And the amazing part is that that new covenant is still available to us. The same covenant. Jesus lives on to offer his life to anyone that will accept it. But saving from death is not all this covenant offers. When Jesus died on the cross, he offered a new way for us to be in right relationship with God, with each other, and with the earth. And Jesus says, when we eat the Lord's Supper or take communion, we will do this in remembrance of what he has done. And to me, that sounds a lot different than what the church in Corinth was doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now you see it. <laughs> Which is why I think Paul actually finishes like this. 
He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So I don't think that Paul is saying here that you have to be good enough, sinless, or perfect to take communion. I do not think that's what he's saying. Because actually I think that no one is worthy of what Jesus did for us. I actually think he's saying there is power and meaning in this act of communion. And when you strip it of its meaning, you look away from the cross. You start to treat the body and blood as something that wasn't good enough. You'd rather have it your own way. But when we eat the symbol for Jesus' body, when we drink the symbol for Jesus' blood, we are remembering what Jesus did and still does for us. And it should inspire us to love, and it should inspire us to reflect, and it should inspire us and turn us to deep reverence and repentance. Communion is about choosing in and participating with the new covenant that Jesus has put into motion from his death and resurrection. Communion reminds us of the love and sacrifice that Jesus made, but it also connects us to Jesus and us to one another. Because the same power that brought Jesus' life back from the dead is the power that can transform us, can lead us out of our old life, out of death, and into a new life of love and peace. And when we take communion together, we are choosing to participate in that power. So the message for us this morning from Corinthians is, friends, don't forget. I think we can learn something from actually the Jewish traditions here. In the same way that the Passover meal has reminded the Jewish people of their freedom from slavery, and even still does after thousands of years, communion should viscerally remind us of our freedom from slavery when Jesus died on the cross, even after thousands of years. Because we know as Christians that even though Jesus died on the cross in a point in time, Jesus is still saving us today. The power of the cross is still alive in this moment, still available to us. And because the power of the cross is alive, that's why as a freshman in college, I could come to Jesus in all of my mess, in all of my chains, and ask for help, and Jesus would do me one better, and he'd give me a new life. And the power of cross is still alive in the fact that my parents are 35 years sober. And when they tell the story of how they became sober, they tell the stories of how they became Christians. And the power of the cross is still alive when one friend forgives another. When you love your neighbor well. When you find reconciliation in a relationship, either with you and God or you and another person. The power of the cross is alive when our wounds are healed. The power of the cross is so alive that I know that some people in this room, maybe even most people in this room, have a story like this where you have seen God take your life or take someone else's life from death to a new life. That is how alive the power of the cross is. And for those of you who haven't experienced the power of the cross, the power of the cross is so alive that you can today 
any day, every day. That is so remarkable to me. And that is what we celebrate during communion. So this morning, I want us to have a chance, instead of just coming up here and breaking and dipping and going, I want us to have a chance to reflect on what Jesus has actually done for us. So sometimes in this church, we take a minute to have like a final question and you reflect on your life. And I'm going to do that. And I'm also going to give us um, what I'm going to call a spicy response. You don't have to choose both, but I'm going to give you a minute to think about how Jesus has brought you or your family or your friends out of death and into life. And I'm going to give us about a minute just to think about that personally. And then I'm going to give us about a minute to share with a neighbor, just as a way of celebrating together. It doesn't have to be big. It could be like, I uh, chose not to honk at the person in front of me (laughs) when they cut me off or whatever, you know? It could be big. I encourage whatever whatever size of of way that you see Jesus bringing you or a friend or your family from um, death to life to share. And we're also just all going to be okay with rejection this morning. If your neighbor doesn't want to share, don't make them. So um, I'm going to give you one minute to reflect on your own, and then I'll move us into sharing, okay? Great. The question should be right here. How has Jesus brought you out of death and into life? Okay, if you're feeling brave, share with your neighbor about how God has brought you out of death and into life. I'm proud of you guys and your boldness to share with one another what God has done. If you did not get a chance to finish, you can continue sharing. I don't mind. 
And you can also continue the sharing these throughout your day at the potluck on Wednesday, throughout your week. I hope you continue to um, praise God for what God has done. And I also just wanted to add um, that wherever you are and whoever you are and whatever you've done or haven't done, Jesus loves you and wants to give his life for you and to give you a new life. So if that's something that you've never experienced before and you want to experience today, if today's the day you want to say yes to a new life with Jesus, I'm going to be in the backspace and I would encourage you to come and pray with me. And if you need prayer for anything else about communion or not, we have a prayer team back there ready to pray with you and be your friends. So would the people serving communion please come forward? And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to break the bread together. We're going to take it in our hands and we're going to dip it into the juice as a remembrance that God sent his son to die for us, to give us new life through this bread, through the body, and through this juice, through his blood. <laughs>